When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. All right, welcome into a special edition of Purple Daily here. Matthew Collar along with ESPN's Courtney Cronin just following a long, long day of draft picks and conference calls and even more trades by the Minnesota Vikings. And we are here to further break it down with some of the NFL storylines along with Courtney Cronin's three favorite draft picks. So, Courtney, let's begin with Trent Williams. Rick Spielman had very little to say about the Trent Williams situation, but as we put together the pieces on the reporting, it seems like they were close to a deal to get Trent Williams to Minnesota, but he ultimately ends up being traded for a fifth and next year's third to San Francisco. You have been reporting in detail on this story. What happened? Why isn't Trent Williams a Vikings? You know, I don't think the compensation was close. Like, let's start out with the fact that Trent is now going to play, at least that we know, before they get, like, a restructured deal and everything. In San Francisco, he's going to play on the final year of that deal, uh, which would have been, I think, a you know north of a $10 million salary. Uh, the Vikings could have taken that on, and they were prepared to send Riley Reese. Uh, in a trade to Washington. And obviously that didn't happen. And then Reef gets to, you know, how that affects the offensive line. I'm sure we're going to get to that. But um, what we know is that he wanted, he wanted a big deal. And what you saw yesterday with Laramie Tunzel signified that uh, he's going to get that number eventually. And a team like San Francisco is going to have to pay him. So, but to my understanding, that was never the holdup with Minnesota. The Vikings were going to be able to pay him down the line. They want to invest in the offensive line. That's why they pursued this so heavily and so aggressively, and it just fell apart. Um, and I think the reason it really did at the end is because of the draft capital. And you saw two two teams essentially come to a stalemate um, over who was going to be able to call the other's bluff more quickly and more efficiently. And I think that you know the Vikings had more leverage here but Washington also saw that they had a lot of leverage and had a lot of picks and said, Hey, we're not just going to give them away for free. We're going to continue to shop and we're going to continue to make this difficult. Uh, we know you want to address the offensive line, but it's not going to come cheap. So I don't think that they ever gave the Vikings, um, you know, much to work with there in terms of flexibility. Uh, last week, as we reported, you know, there was a day three pick, given uh in like a, just a proposed to the redskins and, and that certainly wasn't enough and then what we find out the compensation was um today from from washington and uh san francisco like once we saw the reports that came out you know i i, I think the vikings could have met that i think that that mm-hmm. was a possibility but you i mean we could we talked to, to rick spielman and just kind of what their philosophy is why they stockpiled so many picks 
um, you know, why it was necessary for them to do that. They weren't just going to give up the draft capital anyways. And I mean, yeah, there were some question marks about did Trent Williams want to play in Minnesota? Why would you give up all that draft capital if you really weren't sure? And yeah, it, Trent said today, he told my uh, colleague, John Kime, that that was not true. The rumors uh, that were put out there that he told the Vikings or his representative told the Vikings that he didn't want to come here. He said that wasn't true, but like, why would you give up regardless? If you don't know for a fact, if you haven't talked to the guy and said, well, you know, what's going on? Um, why would you give up all that draft capital and bring somebody else in here uh, that you just aren't sure? Um, you know, I, I just think that that would have been a risk, but you know, for a fifth this year and a third next year, um, that was higher than Minnesota wanted to go. So, I mean, I think they would have done it this year for a fourth and a fifth because Washington wanted second round value and they were just never going to get that. But, you know, giving up a third next year, I just don't think jived well with Rick Spielman. But this is what's weird to me, though, Courtney, in terms of that report from Ian Rappaport that Trent Williams told the Vikings that he did not want to play for them. Now, I'm not saying that anybody's reporting is... uh, you know, a lie or anything like that, but somebody's got it right and somebody's got it wrong here. And when the price comes out to be a fifth and a next year's third, that's really not that much. And that, that makes me lean toward, there's at least something to that, whether it was, he didn't want to sign a long-term contract extension in Minnesota. And and that made them think he doesn't want to come here at all. If that was part of it, or if there's, there's some reason why Ian Rappaport believed enough to say on television, that Williams did not want to come to Minnesota. I think he, I don't think he just plucked that out of thin air and threw it out there. I mean, he's as well connected as anybody else. So, uh, and if you're I also, on, well, I, I think also think on, it could have been the team though. Like, let's like, let's look at Washington and kind of, I'm not defending or, or, you know, going all, all on a limb and all in on Trent Williams. I think this whole situation has been a giant mess since the beginning, but you know, And I'm not accusing a team of doing anything. I don't cover them. Uh, My colleague in Washington handled the Washington side. I handled my side. Um, And to my knowledge, that situation has been toxic for more than 16 months. And the standoff, it's finally over, but it never needed to get here. So I wouldn't be surprised if Washington, um, if that that language and that rhetoric was not coming from the player, it was actually coming from from Washington to make the player look bad. Like, I've seen stranger things, and I could absolutely believe that if that's the case. Yeah, it's it's really hard to figure out who's telling the truth here. I just think that there has to be something to it with the Vikings and, and Trent Williams potentially not wanting to come here, not wanting to sign a contract extension, because... Uh, it makes sense considering that the uh, what they sent back San Francisco did to get him just wasn't that much a fifth and a third next year if that's what you're hanging on to I mean you would really question that so Williams makes sense uh, that if he said I w- I'm not going to sign with you long term and that's what you want then everybody goes okay well this clearly isn't going to work now let me throw out this opinion here uh, that Ezra Cleveland drafting him in the back of the second round is better for the Vikings than trading for Trent Williams because of the the injury risk and because it is a lot cheaper. And I think that Ezra Cleveland is a guy that does remind me a lot of Brian O'Neill, somebody that didn't play against the toughest competition in college, but really dominated 
them. Uh, a great athlete, somebody that could even potentially play guard right away at, at, and start at left guard along with Riley Reef. And it's not like you were so desperate with Riley Reef to get rid of him. I mean, Reef is still an average player at that position, which you can work around. And I don't believe that he was the problem on that offensive line last year. It's just that looking down the road with his cap situation, you really can't keep him beyond next year. But in a way, I would say that Trent Williams did the Vikings a favor. I was on record before the draft that if they got Ezra Cleveland or Josh Jones, I would just prefer that because of the age of the player, the risk, the money that you have to spend. And now if Ezra Cleveland by year two becomes a left tackle, you have several seasons of your starting left tackle being very, very cheap and your starting right tackle will eventually have to get paid in Brian O'Neill and other people will as well. But you'll have young players in those positions that you can grow around for a long time. I like that better than taking a risk on someone who's not played 16 games since 2013. I think there's definitely risk involved with both. Uh, There's certainly less for the situation that you said. But if you are in a window where you think you need to compete, do everything you can to have the most competitive roster now and make a major upgrade on the offensive line with the prospect of a shortened offseason, that's why you go all in for Trent Williams and you try and exhaust every option. And, you know, obviously you move on when you can't get it done. But that's why the Vikings were in such strong pursuit of this and why these talks had been happening for several weeks. Like, you can't just anticipate that Ezra Cleveland, to begin with, is going to be able to play this year. I mean, I think somewhere, some way, he will contribute at, at some point. But a shortened off season, he does not have the rookie immersion program and the time to really get used to playing and get his body used to getting body ready to play in the NFL. So, I mean, that's going to be tough. So I understand the Williams thing from that perspective, and it's necessary. But long-term, Cleveland's a move for 2021. I mean, it certainly could be a move for 2020 if you can get some good play out of him at guard. Um, You know, if somebody gets hurt, he can fill in right away uh, at one of the tackle spots. But you're preparing him to be your franchise left tackle because, let's face it, they're going to move on from Riley Reef next year. That's not a secret. Um, But long-term, it's a cheaper option, and it gives you that two- to three-year plan at left tackle. At least you can start addressing it, whether it was going to be him or Josh Jones. Um, And, yeah, you're right. There are so many shades of Brian O'Neill that we see from there. And I remember, like, in 2018, you and I were doing the Purple Podcast, and we're thinking, I don't know, Brian O'Neill, like, it looks like Mm -hmm. a project. And, yeah, he was a project. I remember when he showed up to uh, mandatory minicamp and we were watching him, Mike Remmers, and Rashad Hill with like those those bags that you they hold up with like two like two two things they hold it in front of their chest and like he was just getting tossed around. Yep. He was he was a pup at that time. I mean, he's a converted tight end. Like fortunately, in the case of Ezra Cleveland, it's not like he was a you know glorified tight end a few years ago. Like he's been a left tackle for a while. So. That's he, like his learning curve and his body curve essentially is going to probably be a little bit less steep uh, than, than Brian O'Neill's was as a rookie, but it still took Brian O'Neill time. And yeah, when he had to go in that Arizona game um, and never gave up the starting job again, like that became his, like there were bumps and bruises. And I think that it's going to be the same for Ezra, Ezra yep. Cleveland, yep. but by and large, this is the better long-term play. I will agree with that. I think Trent Williams would have been good in the short term to get the fix uh, for your offensive line, and you could have it would have been expensive, and you could have moved Riley Reef inside the guard. But now you've saved 
potentially, you know, a deal where you'd be paying him $15 million a year. You can go spend that money elsewhere and invest it elsewhere. And a lot of times we overvalue things based on what we think the absolute best case scenario is instead of the most likely. So most likely scenario with Trent Williams is that he plays like 12 games a year for you or 10 games a year going forward and that he's not the same player that he ever was before. That's most likely scenario with him and that he is one of the five most expensive players. And and neither of those things sounds that attractive. Um, and, And the best case scenario for Ezra Cleveland is that he's a star, but the most likely is that he uses his athleticism to be a solid player at his position. Mm -hmm. And those things are not that far away from each other. Like somebody who's playing 10 to 12 games a year for you and is sort of a little bit of a shell of what they used to be versus somebody who does not ever become a superstar, but becomes a decent, solid starter at that position, which is what Riley Reef is right now. And again, that's where yeah. we overvalue based on the potential of something. Because best case scenario with Trent Williams is he's the best darn left tackle in the league. It's just hard to see that as being super likely considering his age. All right, let's get yeah, into... And his, and his injury history. Like, yes. let's, let's call a spade a spade. He hasn't played a full season since 2013. Like, that's just what it is. Like, to say, oh... You know, the year off, he'll be absolutely fine. I mean, the guy hasn't played football in more than a year. Yep. Like, I, I always, just to get that out there, I always question that. It's like, oh, I can just take a year off in my prime when my body's in the best shape it'll ever be in, and and then I won't expect to be rusty. I'll be able to come back, and I'll be fine. Like, do we know that's the case? Like, I think the time off can be bad in a lot of ways. And, yeah, he's probably been working out, but, you know, that doesn't time off doesn't mean you're not going to come back and not have the same injury problems that you had before. Time off doesn't mean you're not going to be rusty. So what version of Trent Williams would they have been getting anyways? Right. And if they were not able to land any tackle, then I would be going, oh, my, they really yeah. uh, let this one get away from them. But the fact that they were able to get a high ceiling tackle, I like that move better than I like trading uh, a, a draft capital and having to sign Trent Williams to a new contract. So let me move on to a couple other things before we get to which draft picks you like the most from day three. Green Bay picked zero wide receivers. It's been a huge story for us to be talking about how A.J. Dillon was picked for some reason, a running back, and they select Jordan Love for something that might happen two to three years from now, which you know they probably could have waited another year to draft a Jordan Love type instead of having to take him right now. And uh, they did very little here. They get a tight end. I mean, not a whole lot at all that would help your quarterback. And Rodgers did go 13-3 and last year, but did not have a great season in part because his weapons have deteriorated quite a bit. And now they draft some offensive linemen later on they get the the, the aj dillon like what what exactly was green bay thinking in this draft i've had a really tough time figuring it out courtney yeah i don't know it kind of like i thought i was expecting good things from matt lafleur this year and brian gutekunst i really thought that the direction of this team after we didn't know what was going to happen last year like would the offense gel together would aaron Rodgers and his head coach be able to coexist um, and it turned out pretty good. The team goes to the NFC Championship in LaFleur's first season. That's great. But this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I understand the Jordan Love pick. I think I'm in the minority there of thinking for the future. And I, I personally, I don't care. If it lights a fire under Aaron Rodgers, good. Then it did its job. If it doesn't and Rodgers deteriorates and, you know, at 30, you know, he's getting on the other side of the prime of his career at 36 years old. I mean, maybe he's accelerates from here and you know has a 
random surge of, of great play that comes at the later part of his career, or maybe he starts to decline, you have an option waiting in the wings. It's a low-risk move. You can trade him next year if you if you want to, if it really came down to that. like I don't hate the Jordan Love pick. What I hate is the fact that they take a running back in the second round, 62nd overall, when, yeah, A.J. Dillon's a good player, but you have Aaron Jones, last I checked, who was really good last year, and you don't have any wide receivers. You get a tight end who I think was like the third or fourth tight end in a not very deep class. That was weird. Um, a linebacker, a guard, a center, another guard, a safety, another defensive end. Like, what? How did you not get any wide receivers when this is the deepest class, um, you know, one of the deepest class in wide receiver history? There's so many players that it, like, changed kind of the way that college free agency was done for the position because so many guys that we were anticipating, oh, he's a day two pick, third round. The guy was probably taken in the fifth or the sixth. I mean, it's a weird situation that they, that they didn't see any window there to add a receiver. Like, it just – it was the most obvious answer, and unless we're missing something – I don't know what the problem actually is because I can't figure it out. It doesn't make any sense. You make a good point that as we went along in the fifth and sixth round, there were still receivers that we had heard of. I mean, still guys like KJ Hill that were intriguing, but didn't end up going as early as people expected, maybe because of just the, you know, the sheer athleticism that he lacked, or there was also Donovan Peoples Jones who dropped down a guy who Mm -hmm. did not lack for athleticism, but did for production. But those are the type of guys that even late, you could have justified to the Packers as somebody that in any other year would have been a third or a fourth round pick. But in this year they get pushed down with their talent, but not picking anything to help Aaron Rodgers in the draft. All you want out of a a pick that's a wide receiver or even a tight end in this type of situation is somebody who can give you something that can play some type of role in the first year. And they got nobody outside of a road grading running back who might you know, crush people uh, at the one yard line and, and be there. You know, I don't know, be there uh, Derek Henry or something. If he hits and is the, the best he could possibly be. But even that does not contribute as much toward winning, especially like you mentioned, when you have Aaron Jones, maybe they want to do two running back stuff. I have no idea, but um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to not get at least a playmaker when all the opportunity in the world was there to do it in this particular draft. So what green Bay is doing, I'm not really sure, but you can, I think, look at their team and say, you didn't improve much. And so unless you have the luck that you had last year and the defense you had last year, you're not going 13 and three again. No, and I, I don't know when they're going to address this because, you know, it's very clear to me that everything around Aaron Rodgers needs, you know, a boost at some point this season. What are you going to do? Just try to find veterans, uh, pluck them off people's, you know, as people start trimming the rosters, we get from 90 to 53 or whatever it is now with the CBA. Um, is that how you're going to do it? Because last I checked, free agency was over. And unless you're going to try to force some sort of trade here, it doesn't make a whole ton of sense. I mean, Devontae Adams is still really good. But, like, think about who you have. It's Devin Funchess, Marquez Valdez-Scanting, Economia St. Brown, and, and that's pretty much it. Like, I mean, I I don't know. Is that other – was it Al Lazard? Is he still on the roster? Like, I mean – Yep, yep, I think it, he is. I, I'm literally grasping at straws here trying to name a Packers wide receiver, and I think that that's a serious problem. Um, it's, it's just not good. I mean, 
I guess maybe, I mean, the tight end position, like remember Jay Sternberger when he got drafted uh, in the third round last year and then he got hurt, I believe. Um, you know, that's that's an option for him. But like, why am I like grasping at straws trying yeah, to figure right. out like players who are going to be able to like perform for Aaron Rodgers next year? Yep. That shouldn't I, be the case. I think if you're Rodgers, you walk away from this very, very frustrated with your team, which has been the case of Aaron Rodgers in the, really the second half of his career. You could say really, really frustrated, whether it was with the head coach or the weapons or how they've built um, at his best. Rodgers had a ton of very good weapons around him. And we don't ever talk about that because it's Rodgers. But, you know, they had Jordy nelson and Devonte adams and you go back a while you get you know greg jennings and, and other players like that so jermichael J- finley who doesn't like aaron Rodgers a whole heck of a lot but uh, randall, you know, randall cobb good. Like, randall yeah, cobb yeah right and now everybody's gone and he's gonna in a tough spot where he's forced to basically be a game manager because he doesn't have playmakers so let's get into the vikings uh day three here Let's just go through your three favorite picks because I did a podcast earlier sort of giving you the information uh, so you could find that if you go back in the podcast feed on each player. But your three that stuck out that you think um, could either work down the road or right away, Courtney. For day three or just the entire draft? Let's just go day three. Perfect. And then we can give our grades, our official grades. Oh, man, you're going to put me on the spot for that one. Of Um, course. I really like the... um, the linebacker, excuse me, the defensive tackle from Baylor, James Lynch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's going to be an interesting one because at first I'm like, is this just another undersized defense, three technique, like a Hercules Mata'afa that came from an, a defense that, you know, is not his position in that defense in college is not going to translate to the NFL. But, you know, I think that this is a versatile, powerful player who can play inside out. I mean, he getting the, he's a career sack leader at Baylor. I mean, Say what you want about Big 12 defenses. I know that they can kind of be the butt of everybody's jokes, just like Pac-12 defenses, um, considering how how high-scoring those games are. But, I mean, the guy led, you know, he leaves college with 22 career sacks, and he's disruptive as hell. And it's not just the sack number that tells you everything about someone like James Lynch. Um, you know, to me, it's the pressures. It's how he gets to the quarterback. And, like, what does he project as in the NFL? That's what I'm trying to figure out because I think his technique needs work um you know that's something that I heard analysts talking about you know when they were talking about him right after the Vikings picked him in the fourth round but you know there's so many different ways I think that you could use him on the interior and when you have a team that the starting you know you're starting inside guys are Shamar Stefan and Michael Pierce who are run stoppers you're going to need to be subbing a lot of guys in on third down and obvious passing situations. So I think it's a good pick because Mike Zimmer did say you can manufacture that interior push. Well, they tried it last year and, and they kind of struggled with it. I mean, yeah, they used defensive ends, you know, in those spots, but you don't have that type of depth this year. So I think it was a smart idea to address the defensive tackle spot, the three technique spot when they did. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the difference here between someone like James Lynch and Hercules Mata'afa is twofold. I mean, one, you're drafting him in the fourth round as opposed to Mata'afa, who everybody let go off the board. And he came here as a undrafted free agent because the entire NFL believed that he wasn't going to be big enough. Mata'afa is also very small for the position. It's not 
kind of small. It's like John Randall when he first arrived at the yeah. Vikings small, but without John Randall's skill for that position, as no one has pretty much in the NFL since John Randall been able to play at that type of weight. Um, and J- so James Lynch is bigger. He's more like 270 pounds. That is right along the borderline of Tom Johnson's size. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody who might be disruptive in what Rick Spielman called nickel spots, but he means like third downs or obvious yeah. pass situations if you can put that guy in and he can make an impact right away then you can rotate with running situations Shamar Stefan Armin Watts is going to be a part of this formula I think Armin Watts I wouldn't be surprised if he plays a lot and then you have somebody like Lynch he's got a good chance to be there right away I think because of the production he had even if he does like you said need some work along the technique but he seems to have a natural ability to get to the pass rusher I think that's a that's a good pick so let's go to your uh, second favorite player of day three so my second favorite player I actually don't have any order of these guys I'm just going by round um is Harrison Hand, the cornerback from Temple. So he's the, he was selected in the fifth round because they went defense heavy in on day three. Uh, I believe it was seven of the 11 picks were all drafted on defense. So Mike Zimmer for a while had his hand on the board. And, you know, they have to fill out depth spots because uh, their secondary was decimated by free agency. And, you know, we knew this was going to happen. But I really like Harrison Hand because he played in two different types of defenses between Temple and Baylor. And he finished his college career at, Baylor, at Temple after transferring. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they use him. We talked to Jamal Stevenson, the college scouting director for the Vikings, about this earlier. And if this, you know, in a lot of schemes if I've been reading, he like projects, you know, if you're playing cover three, he's going to be the guy that you have in there to stop the run. You're going to have him play up near the line of scrimmage, and then you're going to you know, rely on him that way because he's a really physical guy. He sometimes gets probably a little bit overzealous with the tackles, like trying to like play like Sean Taylor back there. Um, but that's what his style is. So how what type of leverages do you play him? Like what kind of packages do you play him in uh, if he's going to stay at cornerback? Or does he transition to safety? Because that would help you either way. Like you have options with this guy. So I think it's a really smart pick. And the versatility there, like, we throw that word around so much. Like, I don't actually think people know what the word versatile means. Uh, But that's it here, where you can literally play two positions. Yeah, and that was sort of a theme of day three, because even someone like Troy Dye is only 224 pounds. And he might be much more of a cover linebacker who would only play in certain situations against big personnel when you had multiple running backs or multiple tight ends in in there, but the other team still might throw. So you want somebody that is really good at coverage, but he isn't that big. So he's sort of a hybrid type of player. Harrison Hand might be your corner safety hybrid. And then you have, you know, Josh Metellus, who was a box safety, but also played all over the field. And, And Brian Cole was a hybrid safety in college so you got a lot of those types of people and it seems to me Courtney that they would love to find somebody who becomes what they wanted J. Ron Kirst to be but he never Mm -hmm. quite became yeah no I think that that's that's a good comparison right there um and it's a smart fit because that's you know they're always looking to have like those hybrid guys and you know this seems like that's kind of where that's trending because nobody was really giving us a straight answer just on like what is he and i just don't think that they even know yet so i mean that to me is probably uh the most intriguing cornerback 
the biggest mystery at cornerback of any, or any of the DBs that they drafted uh, over the last few days. Because you know what you have in Gladney. You know he projects as a nickel. Eventually he's going to get there. It's probably an outside corner for now. You know with Dantzler, he has a high ceiling. He's long. He's lean. He probably needs to have more to his frame. Um, and he's probably going to compete for one of the outside spots. I think with this guy, you just don't know. So can he be that hybrid role? Can he be, I mean, you know, what they called, what they uh, playing J-Ron, like, you know, playing him on slot receivers and having him cover a bunch of different guys. I mean, what's this guy's strength? I think we're going to find that out. That's cool. All right. Your third favorite pick of day three. Um, It's the slot receiver out of Miami, KJ Osborne. So he too, um, transferred he went to buffalo first and then he went to the university of miami in florida so he played primarily in the slot um in buffalo and then he led the hurricanes in receptions and the numbers don't jump off the page 50 catches 547 yards five touchdowns um as an outside receiver but he was really good in the return game and i think that as mike hughes goes to take on a bigger role in the secondary Mm -hmm that uh, K.J. Osborne is going to have a chance to compete early on for the punt returner job because they're going to end up pulling that from Hughes uh, if he ends up having to – I mean, he will have to play a lot. I just think that you're not going to rely on him to, especially with the injury concerns and everything else, like take one thing off his plate even though he's really good at it. I think K.J. Osborne, if he averaged 15.9 yards per punt return at Miami, it's not – you know. I think that that at least you have an option there to be able to get a wide receiver in who can do some return stuff too. So I already have spoken with his coach at Buffalo because, you know, I'm connected in very few things in this world, but in Buffalo, that is one of them. You're big in Buffalo. uh, I am big in Buffalo. Um, But, uh, and the main thing that he talked about was just that if there's a guy who can sort of outwork his athleticism or outwork his supposed ceiling as someone who's a punt returner and maybe a slot at best, that it's this guy, that he really blew away everybody to the point where Miami brought him in as a transfer and made him a captain right away. And you just don't hear of things like that. And I think the Vikings are very wise to look at only a couple of types of players when you're talking about these late round picks. And and one of them is just the high, high, high through the roof character guy that has a chance to overachieve. And, and that was, you know, Chad, BB two years ago and it was BC Johnson last year. BC Johnson's a great example of this. In fact, I, I would really compare the two. Somebody who is really intelligent, really hardworking, and can get the details of a playbook down. You remember last year at the beginning of training camp where none of the receivers could even line themselves up correctly with the offense? Yeah. I mean, it's a huge deal. Uh, our friend Donald Jones, who comes on the show sometimes, was an undrafted free agent and made it in the NFL. And I asked him one time, like, well, how do you make it as a UDFA and win a win a job on a team that you know has drafted guys and stuff? And he said, line up correctly <laughs> you know that's where it starts so uh you know maybe it's not like he's a pathetic athlete he's, a, he's an average athlete uh with some explosiveness and could be a good punt returner because he has that experience and natural skill but I, I agree with you anytime i hear stories like that the ones that lance leipold the coach of ub told to me um for an article that i'm gonna do on uh, kj osborne i i think yeah okay the guy's got a chance and that's all you want to talk about with late round receivers is does the guy have a chance to make the team to make some sort of impact at some point? And I would say based on the stories of this guy through college that he has already overachieved a lot. And, you know, sometimes they can continue to do that. So sure. 
Um, I also like that pick. And, and I like the Josh Metellus pick for basically the same reasons that you brought up with Harrison Hand, but with a different type of player. Um, versatility is a good thing to get somebody who played at Michigan at a high level uh, and so forth. So that's a, probably a solid pick late, and maybe he becomes a special teamer. So uh, let us grade this draft by the Minnesota Vikings. What do you think? Well, I think I give it a B plus. I think that that's a fair grade because um, there are certainly different areas that I think they could have used draft capital to either trade up or, um, you know, drafted players ahead of where they did maybe get higher quality, higher graded players on their board. But I mean, they're going to maintain that they were happy with the way that the board fell. And honestly, it kind of the way the, the luck and the randomness of the draft kind of did them um, some favors. Um so I think that that's like definitely a positive for them. Like how Justin Jefferson was randomly there at 22 and then they made the wise move to get back to 31 to be able to get their cornerback and get more draft capital. Um, I think the only thing and I'm not, you know, people beat a dead horse. If you don't take five offensive linemen in a class, at least this for this fan base, I think people get pretty ticked about it, but um, the only area I can see Rick Spielman, at least just right now, getting critiqued uh, is the offensive line. It's not that he didn't address it. I think he did. And they were aggressive in trying to get Trent Williams. What can you do? But you got a high ceiling player in probably your franchise, potentially your left ta- franchise left tackle in Ezra Cleveland. So that's good. Um, and for the first time since 2015, they in back-to-back years, they made picks uh, past the fourth round in getting a tackle in and a guard uh, in the sixth and seventh round to be able to come in as developmental prospects. Now I know what Spielman said after the draft, uh, the press conference we had with him and that both guard spots are wide open. They're anticipating a competition, which means that, you know, Pat Elfline could be out of a job who knows, but to, to just to be real, like, you know, Kyle Hinton is tiny he played left tackle at 6'2", 295 last year at a small school called Washburn. Like, he projects at best uh, as a center or a guard. But do you really anticipate a sixth and a seventh-round guy? I mean, those are camp bodies. Like, yep. I'm sorry, those are camp bodies. Yep, so it's like right. you made in, two, in the year 2020, in the last four months, from free agency to the draft, you made one addition to the offensive line. And maybe one addition is enough with – Oliudo and Drew Samia, who they're still very high on, and they're trying to like they're excited to get back to camp to be like, hey, what do we actually have with these guys? Did the red shirt year do anything for them? So that's one thing. But if there's any area I could see him getting critiqued, it would still be that. And I think there is valid- validity to it because there were linemen in the third and the fourth and the fifth round that they could have gone after the Sternberg kid and um, Cushenberry and you know some of the other interior guys that mm-hmm. was a smart play and they didn't they decided they wanted to go defense and that's fine but it's like you're giving up one thing and, and not addressing another yeah no that's right that would be the only uh, ding that you would have off of them is that there weren't enough offensive linemen I, I would say that if you're asking me which 
position this team has a better chance of finding someone late and turning them into a very good player it's probably defensive line because of a just the position and its nature but also who you have coaching them um that's not to say that rick dennison doesn't have a history of that too but you know patterson has done it here where it's almost formulaic how they bring players in and then pump them out and turn them into to very good players in the future um offensive linemen i think because of the position what it asks you to do and the athleticism gap between defensive linemen and offensive linemen it's much harder to be that sixth round guy who develops Mm -hmm. so a lot of times you're lighting those picks on fire as we've seen in the past but like you said they might feel like they did that last year with guys like drew samia and uh, Oli udo and so they now have kind of a full stable with dakota dozier in there they brought brad jones back and there isn't much space for anybody else but until this team ranks higher than 20th in pass blocking we can continue to question uh what they did on the offensive line so uh courtney tremendous coverage of the draft it has been super you fun too. this has always. been fun yeah, i know it's really been has. a little weird this year because we're typically used to you know all commiserating in the media room at tco for mm-hmm. three straight days and not sleeping and you know going conference call to conference call but i actually think that the draft in this format um i could see them doing this like this in the, in the years to come now that's not to say that you know players they you know certainly the league is anticipating they'll be in cleveland next year and then vegas they get a, a mulligan on this so players will be there and they're going to get the pomp and circumstance back but from a media coverage standpoint this was efficient Yeah, I didn't mind this at all. I mean, the Zoom conferences worked actually better, I thought, because the player could see us all and sort of be like, oh, you're real people, as opposed to just random voices popping up on a conference call. And so we got a lot of uh, good and interesting comments from players, which is something we don't always say uh, after the draft. So, yeah, I I think that ESPN also did a really, really tremendous job making it happen. And I'm glad uh, that everybody could tune in to us tune in to to watch the draft and have some entertainment uh well we're all kind of stuck at home so great stuff courtney really appreciate you and uh, we will talk to you on monday we will break this draft down in every which way possible on purple daily two to four central time if you don't listen usually when it's live then uh, do so follow us on twitter at score north and and so forth download the app everything all right uh we will see you next time thanks for listening to this emergency draft day three podcasts catch you next time whether it's baker's simple truth turkey or mac and cheese with murray's english cheddar or pie made with fresh cosmic crisp apples there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays and baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories baker's fresh for everyone get more ways to save at the buy five or more save one dollar each sale Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. This holiday season, Peloton's got a gift for you. Right now, get up to $200 off accessories with the purchase of a Peloton Shred. Accessories like non-slip grip resistance bands, a heart rate monitor, yoga blocks, and more. Take your workout to the next level with Peloton, motivation that moves you. Hurry, this limited time offer ends December 25th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access memberships separate. Offer ends December 25th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com.